coaches of that team. Cassie and Brandon, I don't know if y'all know this, but Cassie and Brandon and their family have been fighting stomach fires all week and kind enough to come this morning. Okay, well done to be quick. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you for coming this morning and, and leading us in worship. Um, this morning, if you would turn with me, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So often in the world, as we measure things or as we compare to one another, uh, our, our metrics are off in so many ways. In, th- in other words, when we talk about things and we brag about things, so many times we look at the wrong things to brag about. Uh, I, I can remember last year when I was teaching in sixth grade, we were having kind of some uh, standardized testing to kind of see where the students were. And, and one of the large metrics that we use is growth. So you encourage the students, if you can grow from the last time you took this test, you know, you get a reward of some sort, uh, some minor little thing. But I had a student who was top of my class. I had a student in sixth grade that was basically being tested on an eighth grade level. Uh, and the third time we took the test, he didn't grow. He dropped two points. And he was devastated that he dropped two points. He's like, Dr. Williams, I don't know what to do. I just didn't grow. I'm like, where were you growing to? You're on that eighth grade level. You're two grades ahead of anybody else in my class. I'll reward you anyway. Uh, Just don't tell anybody. So there's this notion where the metric was a little off. I got to grow. I've got to produce more and more. Guys, at some point, we've got to kind of change the system where we look at other factors. And, And I think sometimes... We look at the improper metrics when we talk about church. As I meet with pastors so often and just kind of encounter them at different levels, and we talk about whether or not church is successful, how's your ministry going, most of the time those metrics center around numbers, growth, how many people have joined the church, how many people have come in, how many people are we running in Sunday school, how many people do you run in worship, what kind of... Uh, of attendance do you have at your special functions? So when they get together and they start talking about the quality of ministry that a church has, it basically centers around how many people are coming in and how many people are joining together and how many people are in fellowships and functions. And just to be honest with you, it's the wrong metrics. Uh, it, it's the wrong evidence that we should be looking at. Uh, I oftentimes ask pastors when they tell me, and we get in these conversations like, how many do you have in worship? And they tell me, my first question to him is, is that actual numbers or is that ministerial numbers? Because what I mean by that is ministerial numbers, you typically add 10% to everything, and it makes you look better, and it makes you feel better. So you don't even trust the numbers that people give you, but really and truly, that's not what we should judge success in ministry upon anyway. We've lost sight of what the key factors are. In, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually engages in an argument that is kind of funny because you can tell Paul don't even want to be in the argument. Paul kind of sets up and says, this is foolish. This is a foolish engagement that I'm about to partake in, but I'm about to partake in it because evidently I have been lowered to this level. And in some ways he's a little snide, in some ways he's a little sarcastic, but basically he engages on an argument that he thinks is fruitless but he engages it because he seems to think that it is necessary within the church at Corinth because what has happened is he has come in, he's planted this church, and he has based it in this good theological framework. 
And now they've allowed some of this Jewish leadership to come back in. These apostles out of most likely Jerusalem. We don't know exactly who he's speaking of. But most likely it's the apostles that are from Jerusalem that have come in. And they've basically kind of taken the church in a wrong direction. And Paul is now coming back in. And what he's finding is people are dismissing him and saying, but we've had these other people who have come in and taught this. And we've had these other people who have come in and said this. And basically Paul says, all right. If you want to do this, we can do this. And he engages them in this argumentation of who is the the, the truer apostle. Who is the better apostle? Who should you listen to? And Paul recognizes at the beginning of this debate that this is a foolish encounter because basically the evidence is off. And he tries to restructure the argument so that we can see what does it mean truly to be a Christian, what does it mean to be successful in your faith? What does it mean when we try to decipher who are the false apostles and who are the real apostles and who should we be attending to? Here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 16, we will read here at the closing of chapter 11 and then the beginning of chapter 12, which is the more famous of the passages. Here in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, we'll begin our reading In verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In uh, in this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You, uh, You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you, pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. God and Father, Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Artus had the city of Damascians uh, guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in the basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. So let's pause there and then we'll go into chapter 12 in just a moment. But here in chapter 11, Paul basically says in the very beginning, look, treat me as a fool because this is a foolish argument. 
even says, I'm not speaking as though I was the Lord. What Paul means by that is Jesus would never engage in this kind of conversation. If you look back over Jesus' ministry and you look into the Gospels, what you would see is Jesus is never boasting about himself. He never brings attention to himself. He always glorifies the Father, and he always presents as everything that he does here upon this earth comes directly from the Father, and he talks about God alone. And what Paul is saying is what I'm about to engage in is not godly in some ways. It's not as Christ would engage it. It is foolish from the very beginning. It is foolish from the very outset. So look at me as a fool because I'm about to engage in the argument. Why in the world would somebody engage in an argument that they see as so foolish? Because that's what the people want to hear. That's what they want to see. They have lowered the dialogue. They had lowered what their expectation was. They didn't want to hear Paul talk about the theological elements. They didn't want Paul to talk about the things that that God had revealed to him. What they wanted was him to compare himself to other people. Said, I'm a better minister than they are. And, and, And basically what Paul says is, I will lower myself to that point. Here you go. I'm a fool, accept me as a fool. And he says, and I understand that you will understand how to accept fools because you have done it so well. You are such a wise group of people. Here is Paul's little bit of snide uh, comments. Here's his sarcastic nature. He says, basically, you are so wise and yet you have suffered fools so well. I know that you will suffer me because you have allowed them to put you into bondage. You've allowed them to take the freedom that Christ gave you and actually put you back into bondage, and you suffer it well. They have diminished your life, and yet you still accept their teaching. I understand that you are wise, and I understand you suffer fools well. Guys, what Paul is saying is this church has basically listened to foolish teaching that has enslaved them and imprisoned them. You do it all the time without recognizing it. Because a lot of the things that enslave us and imprison us sound good to the human mind. One of the classes that I really enjoyed taking at seminary was a class called The Theology of the Cults. And we looked at various cults and the theology that was developed out of those cults. And one of the things that I also loved taking was ancient and medieval theology because we studied the heretics as much as we studied the the, the traditional theology that came out of the church. And what you discovered in those two classes is whether you were looking at a cult or whether you were looking at a heretic, there was a thin line sometimes between good theology and heresy. And sometimes, just to be honest with you, the heresy would sound really good. And the reason for that is because heretics want to attract people. Guys, all the time we listen to foolish teachings that enslave us, imprison us, because things sound good to our human nature. Paul says, watch out for this. But if you want me to engage you on this level, this is the level I will engage you on. What impresses you about these people? Does it impress you that they are Hebrews? Well, I am a Hebrew as well. Does it impress you that they're Israelites? I am an Israelite as well. Does it impress you that they are Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And he goes, I am out of my mind to talk like this. In other words, about halfway through the argument, he goes, this is absolutely nuts for me to engage you on this level. And what Paul then does is he transitions back 
to what it means to be a true apostle. So in other words, I've started out in this foolish argumentation. I've started out engaging you in something that doesn't really matter. And now we're going to transition the argument back to something that is significant. So instead of keeping up with this, I'm a Hebrew, I'm an Israelite, I was circumcised on the eighth day, I'm the Pharisee of the Pharisees, all of these things, now Paul transitions the the argument back to something that matters. Listen to what Paul says. If you want to know who the true apostle is, he defines himself and he defines his life. He says, this is in verse 23, after he says, I'm about to lose my mind in this argument, he says, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, which means by the Romans. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, I do not inwardly burn. Gosh, what a resume. In other words, Paul says, you really want to compare apostles, let's get away from this whole, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Hebrew, I'm all these things, because I'm all those things as well. But if you really want to see how God has used me, man, I've been tortured for the gospel. I've been beaten, I've been flogged by the Jews. I've been beaten by the Romans. I've been imprisoned by the Jews. I've been imprisoned by the Romans. I've been put to almost the point of death. Read the book of Acts. He was stoned to where they thought he was dead, and that's the only reason they left him, is they mistakenly thought he was dead. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stranded at sea. I've been stranded on the land. I I mean, he goes through a litany of things that has happened in his life because he is serving God. Understand, when you read that long list of things that have taken place in his life and the struggles that he faced and the struggles that he will continue to face, All those struggles come about, not because Paul's a bad person, not because Paul made bad decisions, but simply all those things come about in his life because Paul chose to follow Christ. We don't give a resume like that, right? We don't. There's not many ministers that will stand before you and say, I'm a minister of the gospel of peace because these things occurred in my life. I've suffered. I know what it is to be naked. I know what it is to be hungry. I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen. At at Easter, we'll take up Annie Armstrong offering, but at Christmas, we take up a Lottie Moon offering. Lottie Moon starved herself to death, basically, because she was trying to feed poor people in China. It still happens, but it don't happen very much. Our argumentation about how well we serve God sometimes comes from how many comforts we have in life. It's a totally wrong argument. I must be a great minister of God because I can fill an arena. 
doesn't mean anything. Arenas fill up every Sunday afternoon to watch a ball game. A game. Arenas fill up every afternoon to watch basketball be played on a court or anything of that nature. That doesn't mean there's anything significant going on. Doesn't mean that there's anything powerful going on, and it surely doesn't mean that anything godly's going on. It just means that there's a lot of people there. We identify whether we are close to God by how many comforts we have in life because we assume that means God has blessed us. It is the same mentality of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, but we miss the words of Christ when it says that it rains upon the just and the unjust. We miss this notion of Paul when he says when you serve Christ, then you sacrifice When you serve the Lord, you sacrifice. When he invites Timothy to become a minister of the gospel of peace, what he says to Timothy is, come join me in my suffering. Paul understood to serve God was to suffer. You know why? Because the world is a dark place and it is a dangerous place, and our primary call is to change that world. And to sit in houses of comfort and to sit in sanctuaries of comfort and never impact the dark world that surrounds us means that we are failing in our faith. Because we cannot sit in the midst of safety and comfort while the world falls apart around us and not engage the travesty that is the world. God has called us to more. It may bring about hurt. It may bring about pain. It may bring about heartache. But you have to engage the world. You have to minister on that level. Paul says, you want to know why I'm a true apostle? Because I have sacrificed myself and I have put myself out there to serve Christ. And no matter how bad it got and no matter how rough it was, I continued to serve Christ. That's what being an apostle is all about. You don't give up. Even when your faith is what causes all the challenges to come in your way, you don't give up. You stand firm on faith. You know that you will be carried through, not by your own strength, but by the strength of Christ. Paul says, if you want to compare apostleship, I'll compare it all day long. But this is how you know that I'm a servant of Christ. I have suffered for Christ. Guys, sometimes it's really easy really easy to embrace our Christian faith, to watch the world fall apart all around us and just sit back and say, well, we know that it's kind of going downhill. We've read Revelation, but we miss the call of God. God doesn't tell us to sit back and watch the world fall apart. He tells us to engage the world as he did. God didn't sit up in heaven and say, man, that world I created has just fallen all apart. Adam and Eve, ever since they sinned and I had to kick them out of the garden, everything is just in shambles and it's just going downhill. God sat in heaven and he said, I must send my son. And I must do everything I can to save humanity as I've created. To engage the broken world. And it costs him dearly. For it's the very sacrifice of his own son that we celebrate at Easter. When will we engage the world in this level? I pray that there will be a day. And, and I am very proud of the fact that when I go around 
town and people speak to me and say, you know, I hear of things that Goodyear's doing and they talk about some of the engagement that we have in the community and they talk about the different things that they hear about and the different ministries that we have going on. I'm proud about all that. I am, and I understand that there's a, a philosophy in ministry where we celebrate our wins. Andy Stanley wrote a book, uh, he's Charles Stanley's son, he wrote a book that talked about how to grow a church, and one of the primary principles in there is if you have a win, celebrate it, because people want to be on a winning team. And that's fine, and that's great, and they do. I mean, his example is the Atlanta Braves. There for years, they couldn't even put people in Fulton County Stadium, uh, get anybody to come to Fulton County Stadium. And then they started winning and going to the World Series, and they had to build a new field so that it would fit all the people who wanted to come see it. People want to be a part of winning. But guys, let me tell you, Christianity is not just about winning. Sometimes it's about struggles and heartache. And I pray that there comes a day when somebody asks us, how is Goodyear doing? We can answer it in terms that Paul uses here rather than terms that everybody else uses about church. I pray that there comes a day where the things that flow off our lips is not just simply how many people have entered our building or how many people have ser served at uh, some function or how many people have crossed through our paths or how well our soccer league has done or things of that nature. That's all well and good, but I pray there comes a day when somebody says, how is Goodyear Baptist Church doing? And we can list the ministries and the engagement in the world that have had an impact within this community, within this state, and within this world. I pray that we can list those things, even if we have to suffer for it, even if we have challenges that face us, even if it is one of the things that causes great suffering. I pray that we can engage that because that means that we are doing the ministry that God has called us to do. And that is a different view of the church. Paul had a different view of what apostleship truly meant. Guys, we've got to figure out what true evidence is that we're a healthy body of Christ. And it's not so much the numbers as it is if we are truly serving our God. I'm not saying everything we do for God has to be an act of suffering. I'm not. But I'm saying that we can't dodge the things that will cause us suffering if we want to be in the service of God. We've got to engage the world where it is. Paul gives a laundry list of things that he did and the things that he went through to demonstrate that he was an apostle. And Paul continues this conversation in chapter 12. In chapter 12 he says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul goes on, he says, I could boast about some things. And where he's talking about being this kind of uh, inexpressible experience, this level of ecstasy, this vision that he had, which was common in this day and time, that individuals who were apostles and individuals who claimed to be close to God would talk about visions that they, they would have of God and paradise. And, and, and the guy he's talking about is not some stranger, but it's he, it's he himself. And, and Paul is saying, I had this vision. I was lifted up to the third heaven. I was lifted up to paradise. We don't know exactly what that means. Paul doesn't go into an explanation of it. But he basically says that I was so close to God that I had this, this experience, this, this vision of God and paradise and everything else, and I could boast about that. And if I was to boast about that, there would be no faultiness in it because it would be absolutely true. That is who I am. But I'm scared if I boast about things like that, you're going to say, oh, man, look how special he is. Look at what kind of apostle he is. Look at what kind of person he is. And Paul says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want to brag about those things. I'm not going to talk about those things. What I'm going to brag about is the weaknesses that I have. And because God did not want me to become conceited because I had these visions and I had this wonderful experience with God, he gave me a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. There's been all kinds of speculations. I, I think probably the most likely is some type of physical ailment because he travels with Luke in the book of Acts, who's a doctor. He, he, he mentions some physical elements in some of his letters, but we don't know what it is. But he basically struggles with something. Might be psychological, might be physical, might be mental, whatever it is, Paul struggles with something. He said, I begged God three times to take it from me. And he wouldn't. God looks at him and he says, but my grace is sufficient for Sometimes we spend so much time bragging about the good and competing to be better than the others. We miss the whole point Paul's making here. Paul says those are not the things that we concentrate on. The things that we concentrate on is the weaknesses because it's in our weaknesses that God sees or God demonstrates his power. Guys, you want to know a church that would be a powerful church would be a church that could admit its weaknesses. People who could admit their weaknesses. It's difficult. I understand that. We don't want to admit our weaknesses because when we admit our weaknesses, then we leave ourselves open for criticism and hurt and pain. If we do admit our weaknesses, then we admit weaknesses that everybody is already aware of. I mean, my common example on my weakness is cheeseburgers or pizza. But if you don't understand I got a weakness with cheeseburger and pizza by looking at me, y'all need to get your eyes checked. It amazes me. My doctor makes me get on a scale because pretty much walking in his office, he can tell me that I need to lose some weight. If he can't, he needs to go to an optometrist. We use those examples because there's no danger in it. We use those examples because we think everybody's already thinking it anyway. But we don't tell them our true weaknesses. We don't tell them our true struggles. We don't open up like that because that opens up to hurt and pain. And we don't know how they're going to react. We don't know if they're going to react with judgment. They maybe scorn. Who knows? They might react with love and forgiveness. 
but we don't know that, and it's too risky to engage him. Guys, if we want to show God's strength of redemption, if we want to show God's strength of forgiveness, then it would be an amazing world that we can actually demonstrate what it means to be Christian. For what it means to be Christian is that you are broken and God holds you together. Not that you're a good person now, but that God has made you alive from being dead and that he holds you together every day of your life. That's what being Christian is all about. Does it mean that we are elevated above struggles? Absolutely not. It actually may mean that we are surrounded by struggles. Does it mean that we are placed in a safe haven where we will never face danger or heartache? Absolutely not. Most likely it opens up our heart for even more aches. We cannot shy away. We must not surrender. We must engage the world where it is. And whatever your weakness is, wherever it is, God can strengthen you through His grace. And know above all else that wherever you are weak, His grace is sufficient. For it carries us through day to day. We sang a song this morning that said, I can face tomorrow because I know He lives. Guys, not only does He live, but He gives us grace freely. Because he is our Savior and he is our defense. May we be the church that God has called us to be. May we be the people God has called us to be. May we serve him without apology. May we praise him in the midst of pain. May we engage the world on a daily basis introduce them to his grace and love. And may we always understand that we are too weak to do all of it. But his grace covers us and his strength is upon us. And that no matter how many thorns are in our flesh, we are elevated above it by his grace, his strength, and his power. May we represent God to the world as his true servant his true struggling servant, because they may know his grace and know the peace that he can bring. Guys, I pray that we will not have to engage the world in the foolish arguments that Paul had to engage the Corinthian church. But I pray rather that we might have a conversation that is elevated. That we might actually have a conversation about what it means serve our God and to love our brother. And may that conversation be lived out not only with our words, but may it be lived out with our life every single day. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for being a God who is patient with us, and we thank you for being a God who can take that which is dead and make it alive. God, we thank you for your forgiveness, your grace, and your mercy, and allow us to understand that we are 
men and women who are filled with brokenness. We have weaknesses all throughout our souls and our lives. Lord, we embrace your grace. And we pray, Lord, that through our weakness, your strength may be made known. Give us opportunity, Lord, as we go from this place to engage a broken world so that they may see, Lord, your ability to counter the brokenness. As we go and engage the darkness, may we bring your light. And Lord, may one day when individuals ask about our church or ask about our lives, we may be able to give a list as Paul did. For we walk with you daily. We face challenges with you daily. And we've overcome by your strength, your grace, your mercy. God, I pray that we would be the church that you've called us to be. And I pray that we would be the people that you've called us to be. For Lord, that we would succeed in building your kingdom. And honor and glorifying you in all things. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Tomorrow we'll have a time of invitation. If there's any decisions that need to be made in a public fashion, if you'll feel free to come forward this time, if you'll please stand.